I've been to so far. Not one of them have it in stock. Well, well, do they have to be diapers for newborns? What if we went up a size and just kind of... All right, all right. No, no I, I understand. All right, no, I'll just, I'll just keep looking. I'm, uh, I'm pulling into Walmart now, so... Uh... Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well played. Found water on Mars. They have indeed. Don't exactly know what to do with that information, but hey, God bless them, they found it. Oh, well. Actually, they theoretically can separate the hydrogen from the oxygen and process that into providing fuel for manned space flights, ostensibly turning Mars into a giant gas station. So it's a live in an amazing time to water on Mars <laughs> to water on Mars Paul I know that last week we said that it was the final better call Paul episode but we flat out lied and I just hadn't found this paper yet so cheers to finding water on Mars cheers <laughs> to finding this paper and um, incidentally, I, I still never heard anything about my request for this paper, um, but I did eventually find it. So it's always interesting coming into these episodes because, you know, like we've talked about before, we don't really discuss what we think about these papers yeah. before we hop on. So I always like wait and see what clip you choose and see if that gives a hint to what you think of things. So it's always it's always a good little preview of what we're going to get from uh, your side of the mic when these uh the clips come out. Yeah. I pretty much every time like have three things or so that I'm like, I want to find a clip that says this or this or this. And then I just go in search of it through, <laughs> through all of the breaking bad transcripts. So they, they've been pretty on point so far. I'd say. So. <laughs> we'll see if we can keep that up through season two. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. The paper we're talking about uh, that I could not find last week, um, but I did find is called the Performance Assessment for Rock Climbers, the International Rock Climbing Research Association Sports Specific Test Battery. Authors are Nick Draper, David Giles, Nicola Taylor, uh, Vanessa Spagna Romero et al., from the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, Human Kinetics, 2021. So pretty new paper. The purpose is to examine the validity and reliability of a battery of 10 measures designed to assess the key physiological parameters for successful rock climbing performance. And like we talked about last week, this is a a topic that's pretty near and dear to our hearts because we've spent a lot of time at Power Company and at Crux figuring out, 
you know, how do we assess? How do, what do we assess? What do those tests look like? And, you know, trying to come up with our own battery. So it's kind of exciting to, to see this. And, you know, not just us, but, you know, a lot of the industry overall is looking for these metrics and these assessments and like, you know, it was cool to find this paper because this is the first one that I can think of that has like not just looked at this one thing, but is trying to figure out, all right, right, what's this battery? Where do we take someone, you know, through this and find out where we need to take them from there? So I was excited to dig into this one. Yeah, I think it's very cool. Um, let's get it going. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Lucky two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. With our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready? 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 I am ready. How about you? You know, when I when I first found and started looking at this paper, um, I was really excited by the size of it, the the number of women in it, um, and I'm still excited about it. But there are a few things I want to go in on. So yes, I am ready. Buckle up. Yeah, you wanna you wanna take care of the methods here? Sure. Yeah, so this study, they went into it, and there's actually two phases. So the first phase, they were really just brainstorming almost with a group of professionals to decide what do we put in this study, or what do we mm-hmm. look at here. And they, uh, so some of the things they were looking for, the first phase was was looking at a face and content validity. So these, these are terms that just kind of break down what do tests or things we look at, what do they represent. So face validity is basically, does this measure appear to be effective? Does it appear to reflect what we're trying to find? And content validity is, do these elements of this test apply to what we're looking at exploring? Like, for example, right. you know, does my performance on this test actually apply to my performance rock climbing, for example? So that was the first phase. And they went about that by pretty much going through these repeated questionnaires in a group and going through this iterative process uh, called, where is it here? The Delphi method. And so basically they just worked through that process until they came to a consensus of what are the what are we going to look at? What's this battery going to consist of? And they came, uh, they figured out about 10 tests. And we're going to break into those in a little bit de- more detail as we move forward. But they came, they came upon a 10 test that they're going to look at and see how that applied to climbing. That was just the first phase, figuring out what we're going to actually look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that face and content validity is, is really important because we're in this world right now where, you know, and, and rightfully so, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but, you know, deadlifting and, um, things like that are being used for training for climbing as they should. However, it's going to be pretty difficult to take a deadlift and measure it and say, this means that you're this level of climber. Um, so the, the face and content validity of a deadlift test won't measure up enough. Yeah. So it was good to have that first little filter in for these certain movements to figure out exactly what we need to look at. Yeah. And it was 20, it was 20 experts. And I looked at the list. There are some, you know, names we know in there for sure. Um, from all over the world. So, uh, really, really great list of 20 experts that, went through that process. 
I mean, hell, it's hard to get three people to agree on things these days. So, you right. know, the fact that they got 20 and ended up somewhere, they had to do some work there. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> totally. Um, the next phase was the actual uh, looking at how well these tests measured up. So they looked at the construct validity, which is basically that, like how well do these scores represent what we're looking to find? So, and when you're looking at all of these elements of validity for a study, construct validity is pretty high up there. That's kind of what you're chasing for overall. Yeah. And they also looked at test retest reliability, which I think is huge too. Like if you get wildly different results for a test and you do it the same way twice, like what's that going to tell you if it's all different? So I think those are two really important things to, uh, to figure out if you're going to call this battery of tests, the end all be all of, uh, differentiating for performance. But for this phase, they uh, had 132 uh, participants, which is great. That's I think that's the biggest sample size we've seen that hasn't been like a meta-analysis or whatever. Yeah, they mention in the paper that it's the largest climbing study to date uh, when they did it. Which is cool. We're moving in the right direction. So all the yep. people who want to yell about sample sizes, I'm, I'm sure you'll probably find something to yell about with the sample size too. <laughs> but we're getting bigger. We're getting there. Um, but there are 45 women, 87 uh, men, obviously. We'd like that number to continue to be equal, but it's yeah. moving in the right direction. Um, these people- And they were from seven different countries, which is quite cool. Yeah. And they did the testing in all different places, which is also cool. I'm sure you could find something to nitpick about with you know exactly how things stayed the same, but um, it seems like they did a good job. I think that you know one of the interesting things that people may not think about initially is um, you know if we're- if we're taking only climbers from the UK, for instance, and we're testing them, um, no, no shade thrown at the UK at all, but it's very rainy over there. They spend a lot of times in their cellars climbing on boards and training. So they're going to be wildly strong when it comes to these sorts of metrics. Um, whereas if you're only testing people who, you know, live in El Paso and climate Waco all the time, they're probably not training as much as they are climbing. So they may not be quite as strong at these metrics, even though they're climbing at the same level. Um, so I think it's really important that they spread it out over a bunch of different countries. Yeah. That was a very, uh, forward thinking way of looking at it. I would yeah. say. Yeah. Um, so out of these 132 participants, uh, they split them into four groups. And we talked a, a little bit about this in the previous Better Call Paul mm -hmm. episode, um, how they codified, you know, sport crime and grades into this numbered scale, then split that numbered scale into like lower, intermediate, advanced and elite. Yep. So they had these individuals uh, self-report their climbing ability and put them into four different groups, lower, intermediate, advanced and elite. So for the lower group, 20 of that 132 we're in that group. Uh, there are 30 in the intermediate group, 63 in the advanced group, and 19 in the elite group. Yeah, no no higher elites, higher, higher elites, or yeah. most elitist were mentioned. <laughs> well, you know, like I said, there's plenty <laughs> of elitists out there. So. Um, but yeah, so these individuals, they went through all these tests. Uh, they had to, I think it was two sessions, I believe, to go through all of them. Two or uh, three. I two think it three. might have been three. That's right. Yeah, three laboratory visits. Yep, that's right. Um, and they had to put seven days in between each visit, and they had to rest completely 24 hours before. So they're all coming mm -hmm. in recovered, pretty standard baseline for you know each of these tests. They completed a standardized warm-up, 
Uh, briefly, it consists of five minutes walking and jogging, five minutes of general mobilizing, five minutes of specific exercises such as pull-ups, leg raises, and reduced weight finger hangs because they mimic the movement required in the tests. Mm-hmm. They also looked at some anthrop- anthropometric measurements, uh, kind of like height, mass, arm span, forearm volume, body dens- density, and some skin fold thickness to get a better idea of where people were at in terms of you know their body shapes and dimensions there. Yeah, they collected quite a bit from everybody, and there is a test manual uh, that was published in November 2015 called the IRCRA Performance-Related Test Battery for Climbers that you can find on the internet. I have a copy of it here uh, that lays out the all of the tests, all of the scheduling that they did. You know, it gives you all the details. So if you were someone who wanted to try and reproduce this it's very easy to do and that's how they were able to do it in seven different countries at labs in each of those countries and make sure that you know all of the methods were across the board so yeah and so for all these tests uh they went and we're going to break down these tests here shortly but they went through this battery of tests and looked at the construct validity so basically they wanted to see how well these tests split this group of people up into their difficulty level and whether you could see uh, discrete differences between each group based on how you score on the test. And then with these tests, they also repeated a bunch of them to try and find that test retest reliability. Um, they didn't do the uh, hangs in the power slat. They didn't retest those for uh, reliability, which I thought was interesting, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot of research out there that that stuff's pretty reliable. So maybe they're yeah. just trying to save some time, but that gave me pause at first. I was like, wait a minute, we're not going to look at those ones. The ones we're actually pulling off of an edge or a right. hand grip. Yep. I guess you could go either way, but I personally, I think it would have been cool if they retested that one as well. Cause you know, the more evidence that these things are repeatable and reliable, the better in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And you're usually the one who points this out, but I think we do have to keep in mind that, you know, this, this manual was, was put out in 2015. This paper gets published in 2021. So this was already a very long process. Um, mm-hmm. So adding more and more to it just makes it less likely you're going to get a lot of people to do it. Um, so for sure, you know, you, there have to be some trade-offs. Sure. Um, cool. So do you want to dig into the specifics of the test? Yeah, let's talk about those. There were 10 tests. Um, test one was a climbing specific foot raise with rotation. And we talked about this test, uh, last season, season one, episode four. Uh, this is the test that used the Climaflex apparatus. Um, essentially you set up on a hand rung with two footholds and you raise a foot as high as possible along a scale that's out to your right and to your left. And then test two um, was the same thing, but without rotation. You had to keep your shoulders and your hips parallel to the wall while you were raising your foot. And then the third test was a maximal finger strength. So pretty much an individual, we used a uh, 23 millimeter deep rung. They stood directly below the, the edge so that their elbow was completely straight and their shoulder was completely flexed. So pretty much reaching up about 180 degrees of shoulder flexion. Mm-hmm. Um, they're standing on a scale and what they would do is they would pull down on that edge by slowly lifting the knees and heels to smoothly load that edge and pull until that number on the scale got as low as possible and they could hold that for three seconds. So they Mm -hmm. did that on both arms, took the lowest value. If the person could pull themselves completely off the scale, they added weight until they couldn't. So they just found that lowest value there. 
just to just a, a note on that test, they did that test in both open hand and full crimp. Um, I don't know why they didn't do a half crimp. Maybe they thought going on both sides was better, but that's how it was done, open and full crimp. I wonder if that, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of that individual variance in a half crimp. Like we're not busting out the protractor sure. for those knuckles. So yeah. maybe just all the way closed, all the way open. We can just yep. go from there. Um, the fourth test was uh, finger hangs. This looked at more of the endurance aspect of things. So they were using a, a 30 millimeter edge. They would hang with their hands shoulder width apart on that edge uh, just pretty much until they failed. And they took, uh, they measured the time. So what was interesting to me here was the thumb was allowed to touch the rung and the climbers were able to use their preferred grip. So they could yeah. kind of do whatever. So I think that might've added a lot of variance in my opinion, but I guess we'll see what the results say down the road. Yeah. I, I was, I was a little confused why they would, you know, not keep the same grip throughout the two different tests or the same edge size. Uh, they switched edge sizes from 23 to 30 millimeter. I'm sure there were reasons. I, I don't know what those reasons were. Leave that for smarter minds than me. Science is a mystery. <laughs> And then uh, test five was the power slap, which is a 45 millimeter rung, uh, no feet. It's essentially on a campus board with just one rung at the bottom and then marked intervals up the board. Um, they were allowed to use the preferred grip again, and it's an explosive pull and slap as high as you can, making sure that the movement is initiated in the shoulder. So no kipping. Um essentially just a big campus move off of a big rung. And then uh, after the power slap, they moved into the bent arm hang. So the first one, so number six on the document is the two arm bent arm hang. So what they're doing there, there's pretty much holding a lock off. So palms are facing forward, top position of a pull up, hanging, the legs are hanging free. And until the, they just measure that time from the start position, stop the timer when the chin drops below the height of the bar. Mm-hmm. And then the next test, so test seven would be the uh, one-arm bent arm hang. So using a chair, they get both hands in the pull-up position with their fingers forward. They let go with one hand and then just hold that one-arm lock off until the chin dropped below the height of the bar. And then they take the measure for uh, both sides. Yep. And test eight is the pull-up shoulder endurance test on a bar. Um, you essentially do full pull-ups from dead hang all the way to the the top and back down. The interesting thing here that I really like is that they're doing it using a metronome at 60 BPMs, which is, uh, and they're doing it at 15 reps per minute. So essentially four seconds to complete one pull-up rep. Um, so that would be starting at dead hang and then on the next beat, you pull to 90. On the next beat, you pull to full lock off. Next beat, back to 90. Next beat, back to a dead hang. You know, so it's pull to 90, pull to full lock. Back to 90, back to dead hang. Pull to 90, pull to full lock. And so on and so on for the max number of reps. I, I really like that pacing Me too. put in here. Yeah, especially if you're um, considering endurance is what you're looking at here, like making sure we can keep the movement strategy the same for as many people as possible. That's just mm -hmm. going to give you a better look at the actual endurance quality. So yeah, I was with you on that. I had that highlighted. I like that. Um, the next test was a plank. So pretty straightforward, just your elbows at 90 degrees, elbows right beneath the shoulders. 
you're just holding a good plank until you lose that horizontal position. And the metric they're looking at is just the time. Then the last test uh, was the 90 degree bent leg raise. So you'd have two desks below you. You'd have your forearms on the desks and you just pick your feet up. So you're holding almost a chair position without uh, any support. And again, they're just going until you can't keep that. So your hips and knees are both 90 degrees. The second you lose that angle, the test stops and they're just taking that time for the metric. Yep. Um, what did you think about these 10 tests when you first looked through them? Um, they all seemed like logical at first glance. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like core stability, I didn't really think the plank or the bent leg raise did a whole lot. It seemed like there's a lot of wiggle room for stuff to, for people to do things differently there. Um, made sense that we had the finger strength work in there. I liked the scale for actually pulling and being active with your hands instead of like you've talked about it, the offensive versus defensive grips. Yeah. It's a good offensive grip there. Um, you know, I, I, I was all right with it for the most part. Yeah. Same. I, I thought it looked pretty good. It, it felt a lot like what we did in, you know, let's, let's look at the the face and content validity of these tests that we think are going to work. And then let's do some testing and see, see what happens. And, um, you know, we've, we've gone through several iterations of our assessment over time, uh, and come to some things that we think work really well. And we've gotten rid of other things. Um, core strength being one of the things we've gotten rid of. So I sort of had the same, thought with the core strength as you. And one of the important things here, I think is that, you know, all of these are being done in a lab with someone watching. Um, and when we are coming up with things, we have to think in terms of, you know, we don't want it to be able to be cheated very easily by the person. Um, in this case, they could always say, okay, you're, you know, you've, you've broken the 90 with your hips in the, the, 90 degree bent leg raise or whatever. So test stops there. Whereas a person doing it at home might break the 90, but keep going for 30 more seconds because they, they don't think they've broken it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I guess maybe that's just where my brain went. Cause I'm used to, we're, we're used to giving out that assessment. Like, all right, how can I make this as clear as possible just so people can keep themselves honest when they do that? And, you know, they have yeah. the luxury of, yeah, like you said, having the researcher watching them and cutting things off when they stopped. Yep, totally. All right, let's uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Please, all right, I really need a break here, okay? For years, we've helped climbers break plateaus. We've seen patterns emerge, showing what's most effective for each level of climber. Those patterns became our proven plans, a training system that you can follow from beginner until you're climbing 514, V12, and beyond. With workouts geared toward your goals and focused on improving not only strength and power, but tactics and mindset as well, each proven plan is accessed through the Power Company mobile app with a built-in group chat and an option to work directly with one of our coaches. We don't believe in a one-size-fits-all approach to climbing. You shouldn't either. Let's all go back to work, for Christ's sake, okay? All right, we have returned. Um, Looking at the results of this paper, it... It was not surprising to me at all, actually, that tests one and two, uh, first off, the foot raises, as well as nine and 10, the core strength tests, like we just talked about, didn't do a good job of differentiating between climbers of different ability levels. Um, we've tried a few core tests. We've gotten, haven't gotten much out of them, so we've gotten rid of them. And the foot raise, I was actually, I was really surprised it was included. Um, 
when I first looked through these, that was the first thing I saw, you know, their test one and two. And I saw the image and I was like, surely this is not that same test that we criticized back in episode four of season one, because they didn't tell us how big the handhold was. Mm -hmm. And I thought that might come into play with whether they were actually testing flexibility or not. And they do tell us in this paper that the the handhold on the Climaflex was 30 millimeters, which is still a size that requires some, some finger strength to lean hard off of while you're raising your leg. So, you know, in that previous paper, they did mention more research is warranted. We think we had some methodological problems. Um, so I guess it makes sense that it showed up again here, but I definitely was confused about it. Why? Why Why do you got to go and do this? What I thought should have been there was that adapted grant foot raise mm -hmm. that, that you and I both uh, last season thought was the better test for climbers and didn't need the, the Climaflex apparatus. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I was kind of with you on that. I wonder if maybe they just went with something that was already previously researched and they had at least some evidence of how to standardize this and how to perform this where they could share it around and not create something completely from scratch. Yeah. I think in that, in that older paper, um, back in 2009, Nick Draper, same author as you know, this paper, I think in that paper, it did show good differentiation between the levels of climbers. Um, but they weren't, it didn't have good reliability. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that was why they called it disappointing in that first paper but maybe why they're trying to flesh it out a little bit and figure out how to make it work. So, so I do get that it's there. I just hoped that wasn't the case when I saw the images. Right. Um, another one that didn't do well, the single arm full lock off did not do well. Yeah. And I think this was something that in our conversations for our assessments, we would have picked out pretty quickly that, um, unless you're a pretty advanced climber, you're not going to be able to hold a single arm full lock off. And that was the case. They had lots of, uh, the lower level, the intermediate and some of the advanced climbers who, who got zero. Scored zero yeah. Test. So yeah, that kind of, you know, that makes sense. There's going to be a pretty high floor for that one in terms of just ability, but, um, it looked like the two arm one did a little bit better on that front, the two arm mm -hmm. lock off hang. Yeah, I was I wondered why they didn't try the one arm standing on a scale similar to the setup they did with the one arm hang. Um rather than trying to have them hold it, why not try and have them pull their weight off a scale? Maybe that'd be more of a maximal strength goal as opposed to an endurance goal they were looking at there. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, could yeah. be. Yeah, but like you said, the two arms did pretty well. Um the one that surprised me though, the most was that test three, the one arm hangs did not differentiate very well. Um, and, and I'm curious as to why they end up throwing it out. Essentially. Um, they make a, they make a statement once in the paper that it differentiates. And then later they make the statement. It, it didn't do well. So, and they throw it out. So I'm not sure exactly what was going on there or what happened there. It seemed like there's a little bit of bouncing around between the visual inspection of differentiating climbers and then actually what they just, what the data says. Yeah. So yeah, that was interesting. I mean, I had to kind of reread things a couple of times and try and parse things a little bit here. Yeah. And I, I wonder if it has anything to do with the, 
um, the setup for that measurement. Um, I know for sure that when I'm hanging on an, on an edge, one armed, if I slightly flex my, my elbow and if I pull my shoulder in a little bit, I can express my finger strength better. Mm -hmm. Um, and because they were asking them to hang completely straight armed, maybe that threw it off a little bit. Um, I would expect the, the better climbers to be able to hang, you know, with more or with, with less weight taken off of the scale than, mm-hmm. you know, than the other climber. So it, it, that one confused yeah. me. Also, you know, I bet that's why they do these studies too. We can't just assume, right? We got to test it out. Totally. Totally. And I also thought maybe this is a side effect of something that we've encountered and discussed a lot, which is, are we trying to dial down to a specific characteristic like maximal strength or are we just trying to find something that resembles strength that does differentiate between rock climbers? And, you know, they're trying to come up with maximal finger strength. So they're trying to take the shoulder and the elbow and the arm out of the equation, which is not how climbing works. Um, though I understand why they would try and do that. Right. Yeah. So that could be a great example of that right there. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the four that did well tests four, five, six, and eight. Those are the continuous hang, the power slap, the two-arm lock-off. I'm giving them my names so that they make more sense to the average listener. Um, And the pull-up quantity test. Uh, Those showed good validity and reliability. They differentiated well. Um, And the continuous hang and the power slap they mention are kind of their the two top favorites that came out of this. And man, when I see that, I kind of get happy because they're the simplest out of all the 10 there yeah. too. So, you know, that's always nice to see where like the simple measures are always going to be, or at least where the simple measures are backed up by evidence as a really yeah. good way to look at something. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it also makes me happy in a selfish sort of way that we have <laughs> some version of these in our testing battery. You know, we've, we've come to similar conclusions. Uh, the one that we don't really have a, a, you know, a perfect example of is the lock-off. Um, we use a weighted pull-up that for us has proven to be a good differentiator. And and I'm actually curious as to why a weighted pull was not included here. Maybe, I mean, I'm sure they thought the one-arm pull was going to, the one-arm lock-off was going to be the thing that showed pulling strength. So maybe that's it. Yeah. I think that would be really interesting to look at the pulls. you know, even the only like pulling, um, actual pulling movement they did was we just talked about the finger strength, the max finger strength, but they mm-hmm. did everything they could to take the rest of the arm out of it. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see if that could have a factor, you know? Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you feel about how it all came out? I kind of like it. It's a great basis for building your own assessment battery. Um, someone wants to ask, where's your evidence for why you have your assessment battery or why you do the, look at these things. I think this would be a great cornerstone to fall back on. Um, again, I like it cause it fit my biases too. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> frank about that. Like, you of know, of course. Yeah. Oh, cool. This, this says what I thought I was going to say. Great. Yeah, totally. I mean, we have to like what we're biased toward. That's just how we're programmed as humans. Um, I also like that you know, it sort of fits into the IRCRA's stated mission of, 
you know, furthering, not only furthering climbing research, but also creating some sort of a conversation between coaches and climbers and researchers. And, and this does provide a, a nice, um, basis for coaches mm-hmm. who want to do assessments. Yes. Science. Um, I would love to, to see this distributed more widely and pushed out there to coaches more. Um, you know, maybe that's, maybe we're doing that a little bit right now, but I would love to see the IRCRA doing more of that themselves or providing some sort of forum for discussion amongst coaches in general for it. Yeah. Cause I've seen some pretty wild things in terms of assessing people <laughs> pop no up doubt. the last couple, the last couple of years. So um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, some information for everyone I think would be great. Yes, so yes. this is a, this is a piece that needs to be out there more. Yeah, totally. I agree. Um, based on what they found, are there things that you would like to see happen next as a coach who's regularly reading the research? What would you love to see happen? I'd love to see them look at a one-arm pole and add that into the battery. I think that'd be a big one. And I like to see maybe breaking these all down into co- individual component studies, just a little more in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think this is a great kind of arrow pointing to where things could go. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one of the things I would really like to see done is, um, besides the weighted pull-up, which I've already mentioned, I would love to see that. Um, but the power slap, I would like to see explored even more. Um, I'd like to see if it could be, if it shows the same sort of reliability and differentiation on a smaller edge. Um, I'd like to see it done using feet. I'm just curious how that would play out. Um, it won't be, you know, specifically an upper body power test anymore, but, but neither is climbing to be honest. So, um, I'm curious how that would show up. And I think the power slap showed such good promise here. Why not see if we can, um, you know, make it more useful for the average everyday facility because the, the size edge that they used is really big. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's over an inch. Uh, It's almost two inches, like an inch and three quarters. And most places just don't have campus rungs that size. So I'd be curious to see it done on whatever the average large campus rung is, um, which I think is about an inch. On that note, you know, this whole IRCRA is about creating this cooperation and communication all across the world. I think they could be a great body for maybe putting out uh, guidelines or recommendations for standardized setups for these just to get everybody on the same page. I think, you know a power slap standard setup would be great because we don't have that right now. Everyone kind of does something similar to where they're doing it, but there's differences. Right. I think this could be an opportunity for some just standards for how we are going to look at these tests or something along these lines, get everybody speaking the same language. Yeah. And they do, they do have a a diagram of the power slap board Mm -hmm. in here. So if, if we wanted to build one, we certainly could. And I think if you're a, if you're a facility, um, who is regularly doing assessments and you have access to this IRCRA data as well, then that's probably a smart thing to do is build one of those. Yeah. They also have a diagram for the Climaflex. I'm not so sure I'd build one of those. You mean you're not putting that in the machine shop? <laughs> I'm going to take out the 45 degree spray wall and just put a Climaflex in. Clearly that's the only thing you need to do. So. <laughs> Look it up. It's science. Uh, what else was there? Um, 
I'd like to see the single arm test done in a preferred grip with a with a small amount of arm movement, like you know, flexing a little at the elbow. And um, I'd love to see if that changes things. I I suspect that the open and full crimp uh, being you know using both sort of hindered a lot of people. Uh, especially at the lower levels of climbing, I very often see people who prefer one grip style over the other, almost to the point of exclusion. Mm -hmm. Like they never open hand or they never full cramp. Or they never use their um, pinkies. Or they never <laughs> use their pinkies. Um, and some higher level climbers. I mean, I'm, I'm myself am included in that group of, I very rarely full cramp and I, I prefer the three finger open hand. So, um, I think using both of those grips might have thrown things off a little bit. And I wonder if a preferred grip might change that. Yeah. Cause you know, max force generated, there's a psychological component of it. And if you don't feel safe in a grip, you're going to put restrictor plates on how much force you generate for sure. Yeah, so. totally. Totally. They also, they make some good suggestions in this paper concerning the, the flexibility and core strength tests, um, that they, they tried to do the test that they didn't, show much. So they got thrown out essentially. However, um, they do make some interesting statements about, you know, it, you might need these things up to a point, at least this is what the research is suggesting. You might need them up to a certain point, And then above that threshold, we don't need to worry too much about core strength or about flexibility, um, unless it's really specific cases for your specific project, or if you have this obvious mobility deficiency or something to that effect. Yep. And there's also been some research saying core strength might just be really hard to measure and it's going to be really sport specific. So measuring it becomes even more difficult. I mean, if I had to sit down and think about what I would, if I could only pick one exercise to measure like climbing specific core strength, I still don't, we've, we've all talked about this. Like, we, we I don't tried know, it. I don't even know where I'd go. Like, yeah. We, we tried a few things and just no, we got nothing out of it. Mm -hmm. So data is just all over the place. Um, it's very, very tricky to figure out how to measure climbing specific core strength. I did like going back to flexibility real quick. Um, when they said for higher grade climbers who have already passed that, I guess, flexibility filter, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, if they are returning to climbing after an injury, a flexibility assessment mm -hmm. might be useful. And mm -hmm. I think that might be, you know, making sure you can own these positions that, you know, hard rock climbing puts you in hard relative to however you rock climb, but, yeah. you know, making sure you can really own those positions you're in and you're physiologically prepared for getting back into those positions. So I do agree with that. Like definitely has its place. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. And I, I don't want that to be misconstrued as us saying um, flexibility will keep you from getting injured. It's more you've gotten injured in this position. Your body is likely to, um, you know, regulate how you get into that position because it doesn't want to get injured again. So it will probably reduce your mobility in that in that same movement. So, you know, making sure that you can still get into those positions is a really great thing. Yeah. I mean, we've got a person who's training at Crux who just started pretty recently, who's came back from a pretty like full on shoulder surgery, shoulder reconstruction. And mm -hmm. they have the ability when passively tested to get completely overhead, but you start loading it up, they start kind of shorting that position. And yep. it's been useful to remind them that it's, you can get there. It's okay. There's maybe some threat perception there. So knowing where that is and where you can kind of pursue that in a safe, responsible way, 
could speed up your uh, recovery and return to performance. Yeah, totally. I think that's, that's super smart. Uh, anything else from you on this paper? No, it was great. I was stoked. You found it. Um, I like the simple actionable stuff that came out from it. You know, we can always armchair quarterback, some of the results and, or some of the methods in certain ways, but overall, like this one gets the stamp of approval. Yeah, totally smart. Well done. You know, a big sample size, uh, for rock climbing, especially a big sample size. Um, larger sample size of women than we've seen in the past. Um, so for me, I think this is a big win and I'm glad that it's out there. hundred percent. All right. You can find both Paul and I all over the internets by following the links right there in the show notes in your pocket supercomputers. You can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you have questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, Hit us up at community.powercompanyclimbing.com. We are going to be doing this season several papers that were suggested to us by listeners. So thank you all for for your suggestions. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Leave us a review. And please tell all of your friends who think that their side splits and their one-arm hang numbers are enough to make them great rock climbers that you have the perfect podcast for them. We'll see you in a few weeks when season two officially drops. And now that we've got the entire season laid out, I can tell you for sure that we'll be looking at a few other ways to assess climbing, both movement and energy systems, how attention and pressure affect performance, more on climber shoulders. Does chalking up or shaking out actually help you or are you just wasting your damn time and money and energy? And maybe most exciting, we've got some studies specifically looking at female climbers. It's about damn time. Can't wait, guys. Onward. It's done. You keep saying that, and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay? You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning, and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Radio. 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 Radio.